0: So welcome back to Cracks in Postmodernity. Today, we have Dr. Michael Foley, who I discovered a couple of years ago through an article that he wrote for First Things. It actually came out in 97, but it's called Tobacco and the Soul. I found it really fascinating. So I'm very excited to have you on. Um, Tell us a little bit about your background, your teaching, your writing, and all that. Well, thank you, Stephen. It's it's a delight to be on your podcast. I
1: teach at Baylor University in the great texts program. That's sort of the great books of Western civilization, the greatest hits, if you will. Uh, My background is theology. I got a PhD in theology from Boston College. And I was working on that PhD when I wrote Tobacco and the Soul for First Things, which is the article you read. And that was my very first publication, and I'm still trying to live
0: it down. I mean, it really is uh, an exceptional piece, because, you know, when I was growing up, all I heard about smoking is, it's bad, it's evil, don't ever do it. And no one really explained, but like, why do people smoke? The only thing that people said is like, oh, because they're depressed, and they're sad about their lives, and they want to look cool. And I'm like, well, there must be more than that so to read someone who's actually talking about smoking smoking in relation to the soul in this kind of phenomenological sense it just articulated so much of the things that i intuited but didn't really know how to say so how did you come up with the idea to write this article what was the process like i'm very curious
1: well as a student of philosophy and theology I was studying a lot of Plato and his theory about the three parts of the soul. And once you understand his idea of the three parts of the soul, it is addictive far more than nicotine because (laughs) you start seeing it everywhere. And you see it in not only other literature, uh, so many other authors draw from Plato's idea of the, the tripartite soul, but you just start seeing it in things around you. And one of the areas where I saw this application was smoking tobacco.
0: Yeah, and it's everything that I've heard about smoking, it, it's always focusing on the bodily health and the effects that it has and it's like sure we know that tobacco has plenty of negative effects on the body but no one ever starts from the position of the soul you know um so it ends up that the way that tobacco is presented like it's purely moralistic it's like this is bad because it's bad for your body therefore never ever do it and ultimately i mean i think it makes it so much more attractive for people when you make it so forbidden Rather than engaging like, what does this mean though on this existential ontological level? Um, Yeah, the soul is missing from the way we talk about most things. Why is that? Why do we ignore the soul so much?
1: Well, that's a, a very big question. And of course the enlightenment and modernity has a lot to do with that. We have increasingly lost a sense of transcendence and when that happens, we just become fixated on the material. And indeed, uh, the 20th century was the great century in which we, we did learn about the authentic health risks involved with smoking. So it is understandable that uh, there would be this sort of fixation on the body. But you're right, something gets lost. Um, before, the, the debate about smoking largely had to do with its impact on the soul. Was it a vice or not? And to be honest, the, the general consensus before we got this obsession over bodily health was that smoking was a vice. Uh, that was the critique in the you know when smoking was introduced to Europeans by, by the Native Americans. Um, on the other hand, it was argued that it was a vice that controlled other vices. It was a, a small vice, At least that the defendants would argue that it was a small vice that guarded against greater vices. Um, There is a great Catholic apologist named Monsignor Ronald Knox. Uh, He died in the mid 20th century. Uh, To be honest with you, he died of lung cancer. He was a chain smoker. But uh, his saying was tobacco is essential for celibacy.
0: Yeah, and that's, it's funny because I know you've written extensively about drinking and the saints, but I when I think about it, there are a lot of saints or at least very holy people who smoke tobacco. Um, I know, I remember I was reading Dorothy Day's biography and she, I think she decided to give up smoking for Lent or something, and everybody in the Catholic Worker House just couldn't put up with her attitude because I guess that was her outlet. So they're like, please just start smoking again. We can't take you when you're when you're not smoking. Um, oh my gosh, yeah. that is
1: too funny. Well, I know that um, Pope Saint Pius the Tenth, when he was canonized as saint, in those days they had the the person called the devil's advocate, mm-hmm. who was a canon lawyer. That was their job was to look up dirt. Uh, to see if there's anything that could be said against the saint before they canonized him. And the devil's advocate assigned to Pius X could only find two things. Number one, uh, he celebrated his low mass in less than 20 minutes. And uh, and number two, he smoked a cigarette
0: a day. (laughs) One cigarette a day. Scandal. They so say- I actually
1: think that's a yeah. that's something in favor of his canonization that he I could just limit so. it to one cigarette. Yeah, shows heroic virtue. <laughs> I
0: mean, definitely. And they say I heard that Pope Benedict smoked Marlboros. I don't know if it's true. So I've heard that
1: as well, and that Pope Saint John Paul II smoked cigars.
0: Okay.
1: Um, maybe yeah. not regularly, but when he was Archbishop of Krakow, he visited the United States and. He joined other clerics in playing poker and smoking cigars. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that doesn't surprise me. But then, uh, on the yeah. other hand, didn't Pope Francis ban the sale of cigarettes in the Vatican? I saw that somewhere a couple of years uh-huh. ago. I mean,
1: that's interesting. Well, you know, he has yeah. only one lung so maybe that's the reason he's extra cautious Could he doesn't be. want any secondhand smoke i don't, mm-hmm. I don't know
0: <laughs> everyone has to go outside the vatican walls to get a pack i guess but okay <laughs> so um for the people who haven't read this article i just want to kind of go through an overview of the different types of tobacco you mentioned and then you also went to weed so you say that cigarettes correspond to the ap- appetitive appetitive Say. A pe- yeah, the appetitive part of the appetitive soul. Appetitive part of the soul. Okay. So, what do you mean by that? What is the kind of philosophical significance of cigarettes? Well, Plato came up
1: with this great theory about the soul. He he claims that it has three parts. But what he means by that is that there are basically only three kinds of things that a human being can desire. There are millions of things we desire or can desire, but they all boil down into only three categories. And that's true in antiquity and it's still true today. So the first thing is what he calls the appetites, the physical appetites. This is when you desire either some kind of physical object or a physical pleasure. So the love of money, uh, the love of food, the love of drink, Uh, the love of sex, all these things would fall into the category of the appetites, the physical appetites. But that's not all a human being can desire. We can also desire in a sense less tangible goods like honor or recognition, uh, fame, glory. That's a very kind of different desire than desiring a hamburger. You know, when you, when you desire to be first, uh, when you desire the gold, uh, that's a very different kind of desire. Plato referred to that as the spirited part of the soul, the thumatic part of the soul, the part of the soul that, that seeks to be better than everyone else. Uh, pride comes from the spirited part of the soul. Um, but that's not the only kind of desire either. There is a third kind of desire, and it is the desire for knowledge, the desire for wisdom, uh, curiosity. These are very different kinds of desire than the desire for a hamburger or the desire for first place. And Plato called that the rational part of the soul. So you've got these three parts of the soul, physical appetites, thumos or spiritedness, and the rational part of the soul and i argue that the three prevalent forms of smoking tobacco correspond to those three parts of the soul so cigarettes correspond to the appetitive part of the soul which is why we often associate them with food and sex there is the the postprandial cigarette the cigarette after a meal and then there's the famous post coedal cigarette, you know, all the movies showing the lovers smoking in the bed after they have consummated the act. Um, And that kind of makes sense. And we'll, we can talk about that in more detail, Um, but just to finish up the the equation. Mm -hmm. So cigars correspond to the thumatic or spirited part of the soul which is why we often associate cigar smokers with power mongers, you know, powerful businessmen or uh, mafiosa um, or Tammany Hall. You know, we, we equate political intrigue with closed rooms where men smoking cigars plot um, policy or who the next candidate is gonna be. Um, and then finally, the pipe corresponds to the rational part of the soul, which is why we associate lovers of wisdom with pipe smoking. Uh, You know, C.S. Lewis, J.R. Tolkien, uh, we're we're both pipe smokers. Oxford Dons, you picture smoking their pipes. And of course, Sherlock Holmes uh, is always associated with the pipe even though Arthur Conan Doyle portrays him smoking, well, smoking lots of stuff, (laughs) uh, cigars, uh, cigarettes, and of course, some other substances which are now illegal. Um, So uh, yeah, so that's the basic lineup. Cigars, excuse me, cigarettes, cigars, pipes, correspond to physical appetites, the desire for glory and the rational part of the soul.
0: So, and you briefly mention like snuff and chewing tobacco and you say they're not really part of the soul or it's not an expression of the soul. It's more like a subhuman. Well, why do you say that? Well,
1: well that's the funny thing about the human soul is that it also has what I would call subhuman elements. That doesn't mean they're bad,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but are, what is the soul? The soul is the principle of life. It is that which gives life to the body. And in the human being, uh, there are parts of our soul that um, we share with um, animal life, Mm -hmm. and that is our appetites and our thumos. Animals lust, animals get hungry, animals get thirsty. So we have that part of our soul in common with animals. And animals have emotions, they get angry, and that's what the thumotic part of the soul or spirited part of the soul is all about. But there's also a part of our soul which we have in common with all life. And that's not only animal, but vegetative. So according to the old schema of things, plants have souls. Uh, They don't have immortal souls, but they do have souls because they have life and they grow. And um, it is that part of the soul that, um, that I equate with things like snuff and chewing tobacco. The reason why is that um, the three parts of the soul, even the parts that we have in common with the animals, are responsive to some extent to human reason, whereas the vegetative part of the soul is not. And human reason is symbolized by fire. So the key thing is smoke, smoking tobacco Cigarettes, cigars, pipes, they are all lit by fire. And and fire, since the days of Prometheus, is the sort of emblem of the human. Whereas snuff, smoking, tobacco, doesn't involve the use of fire. That's why I equate it with the uh, the quote-unquote vegetative part of our soul. The part of the soul we have, but is unresponsive to reason. To the fire of reason
0: so then speaking of fire you also need a flame to light marijuana if you're gonna smoke it but you go on to say that marijuana is kind of this impostor, this uh imitation of smoking tobacco Mainly because the effect that it has, the nicotine high is different from the THC, but the nicotine buzz, I guess we could say is different from the THC high. So why do you say it's an imposter or it's an imitation?
1: Well, uh, smoking marijuana does imitate the forms of smoking tobacco, right? So the joint imitates the cigarette, uh, the blunt cigar imitates the cigar, and the hash pipe imitates the pipe. So it copies smoking tobacco, but the effects are quite different. Um, it doesn't make you, like a, a cigarette is associated with desire. Um, yeah, marijuana gives you the munchies, but uh, it doesn't necessarily, in a sense, make you a more desiring human being. It makes you a less desiring human being. Your, your appetite is kind of uh, blunted um, and the same with your, your spiritedness. Uh, you know, the, the typical uh, pot smoker does not become more ambitious, but less ambitious. Um, and then finally, the typical pot smoker becomes less wise, more than more wise. Um, and I mean, it does have a lot to do with the effects of the, the THC, which incidentally are so much higher. Uh, today than they were when marijuana was popularized in the 60s and 70s. I think the THC level back then was only, well, I know it was in the single digits. Maybe it was 7%. And now uh, the marijuana that you can typically get today is 30%. So um, this is a significant spike, and it doesn't lead to the kinds of good things that smoking tobacco in moderation can lead to.
0: Yeah. And I, I mean, I have to be honest, I've never taken in marijuana in any form, not smoking or eating, whatever. The only things I can say about it are from observing college roommates, because my freshman year I was placed in the pot dorm. That's what everybody called us because my roommates literally smoked all day long. They would just lock themselves in the bathroom, turn the shower up really hot, put the towel under the door, and it would just like all coalesce in there, day and night. And they were nice, very nice people. But what I saw is that the effect that it had on them, it was, um, I guess a means to cope with this sense of emptiness or meaninglessness that they were facing, like you know, they got into college or taking these classes, but didn't have any sense of drive or that they were seeking something through their education. So I guess that's marijuana had a numbing effect. Um, I guess this kind of nihilistic sense that they were feeling. And I don't know, like I felt bad that they, they were losing a sense of purpose and that the marijuana just kind of distracted them And then you talk about how the conversations that marijuana gives way to, like it's an imitation of the conversations that tobacco might might lead to. Because I know like, you know, if you step outside of a party to smoke a cigarette or in the middle of studying, yes, it gives you that buzz, that feeling, that sensation, but it doesn't divorce you from your capacity to use reason. I, for me, I find that it enhances it, it kind of sharpens it, it makes me more intensely aware, not only of what's happening, but like, it makes me want to understand the importance of what I'm doing, whether at the party, or if I'm studying, taking a break for something. And we like, it chops off that connection with reason, that capacity to seek some purpose. Um, That's why I feel like, you know, sure, in moderation, maybe it's one thing, but ultimately has this very nihilistic kind of air about it, you know?
1: Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And the bottom line, which I think you and I both agree with, is that uh, it's okay to indulge your appetites, yeah. to satisfy your appetites and your emotions, but it shouldn't be in an unreasonable way. Mm-hmm. When, we, when we say that reason should always, in a sense, be in the driver's seat, we're not talking about becoming sort of robots who only think logically. To say that reason is in the driver's seat simply means that when we do indulge our appetites and emotions, we don't do so in an irrational way that that truncates or violates our reason. And um, again, smoking in moderation and drinking in moderation are both morally acceptable and good activities Um, because they can, uh, in a sense, enhance uh, things like camaraderie and conversation. It's when they're done, especially with alcohol, when it's done to excess, that's when it becomes problematic. You don't have rational conversations anymore. You're just being goofy. Um, And the big problem with marijuana is that it's extremely difficult to use in moderation, Um, just the smallest amount of THC puts you into that high, and then it disconnects you. Even if you have a feeling of camaraderie, in reality, it is disconnecting you from your interlocutor.
0: Yeah, and I think it's important to distinguish when we're saying our capacity to use reason. Again, it's not like that we have to be perfect rational robots, but for me, when I say reason, I'm saying the ability to recognize that there's some presence of truth or some existential value in the moment whatever that I'm whatever I'm doing and I I think it was uh what was Aquinas said, drink to the point of hilarity so it's like you know you're having a good time you're having fun but your reason is intact and you're able to understand the value of this moment you know um but and again that's it's easier to do that with alcohol but with marijuana THC I just it's interesting also that when I try to have this conversation, especially with younger people, if I mention cigarettes, they're like, oh my God, that's horrible. That's evil. You're going to get cancer. And then when I bring up weed, they're like, oh, but it's natural. It doesn't hurt you. It's good for you. Um, like, I mean, medically, physically, okay, kind of, but then what about the effect it has on your soul? Like when we talk about using these substances, again, like we're not starting from the point of view of the soul, the interior life, it's purely biological. And I just, my fear is that if we're gonna operate with this worldview that only the body matters and therefore weed doesn't have that much of an effect so I can smoke it all day, um, we're losing, we like, we lose the ability to judge like what effect does something have on my soul, on my ability to recognize truth and meaning in whatever I'm doing each day. Um, I don't know, like I worry for younger people who don't know how to think in that kind of way, you know.
1: I agree. Um, And also, I mean, uh, an aside, but marijuana isn't innocent when it comes to its impact on the body. Sure, It also has uh, terrible health effects, or if not worse. Um, But you're right, the focus should also be on the conversation regarding the soul. Um, You know, Yes, tobacco, especially because nicotine can be so addictive, mm-hmm. can have a very bad effect on the body. Um, but unlike, unlike alcohol or marijuana, it rarely has a bad impact on the soul. Um, you know, People who get together and smoke together always have good conversations with each other. Um, unlike alcohol, smoking has never destroyed a family. I mean, I'm, I'm a big proponent. I, I write drinking books, cocktail books. Um, I've written, you know, three of them. Um, but I recognize that alcohol can destroy a family. Um, you know, drinking to excess can destroy a family. I've never heard of smoking to excess destroy a family, unless you count, you know, uh, the guy dying of lung cancer and that you know, that, that's a bad thing, but uh, the actual activity of smoking has never, to my knowledge, destroyed a family the way alcoholism can.
0: Yeah, and speaking of family, you talk a lot in this essay about, I guess, the tension that tobacco smoke makes you aware of, especially the erotic tension, Um you know, because sure, like you can easily say a cigarette or cigar is a phallic symbol, but beyond that, the effect that the nicotine buzz has, like it sharpens your awareness that there's, um, there's this ideal that we're aspiring to, but that we're not there yet. And I think it makes me think on one hand of Freud, who, you know, was a proponent of smoking cigars, but who recognize that the drive for sex, eros, is very much wrapped up in the reality of death, eros and thanatos, that this desire for erotic fulfillment for pleasure is not totally benign, that you know there is the risk of death and the reality that at some point we will all die. And I think smoking tobacco makes you aware of that. And it, it just brings you back in touch with the reality of the human condition Um, and it, I think, who was it? Oscar Wilde once said, I think it was in the picture of Dorian Gray. He was smoking a cigarette and Dorian said, like, you must have a cigarette because it's the perfect pleasure. It will never last long enough. I feel like that's just, it's the perfect way to put it that Uh like, you're aware that I have this drive for pleasure, but that it's finite, that this moment is not enough to fulfill me. So then it makes me aware that, okay, but I want something greater. Like I want this higher truth or this higher experience of pleasure that the yeah. tobacco won't give me. Whereas for weed, you think you're fulfilled in the moment and then you come down from the high and you're not fulfilled anymore. So the tension is like erased. You know, I like that. Yeah, I like
1: that comparison. The reason why I believe, and I put this in the article, that cigarettes correspond to the impetitive part of the soul is that mm-hmm. they have a lot in common. With a physical appetite, you will always seek to make the object of your desire as much a part of your body as possible. Um, You know, food, when your hunger involves ingesting food, thirst is satiated by drinking, by putting it into your body. And even uh, sexual desire, there's a way in which you seek to make the body of your lover as much a part of your own body as possible in in this unitive act. Um, And what's significant about cigarettes is that they are the only kind of smoking tobacco that you inhale. So you you are bringing that smoke into your body and making it a part of your body as much as possible. Whereas cigars and pipes, of course, are not inhaled. In a weird way, there's kind of more of an external focus with cigars and pipes that is reflected in the nature of those two kinds of desire. You know, when you seek honor, you have to seek honor from as many other people as possible. There's an external focus to honor seeking that is sort of um, emblematic of the the cigar smoker. And then the same with the pipe, uh, reason or the, the desire for knowledge is seeking a truth outside yourself.
0: And then you say that um, smoking weed is not an erotic experience. It kind of takes out that erotic tension. And you compare it to, I think you said something about the sexual revolution, how it takes away the true meaning of eros.
1: Exactly. Eros requires tension. Um, Romance flourishes when there is a wall of mystery between the sexes. And then there's the courtship. Uh, There is the dance. Um, when you look at like old film noir movies in which by the way they're smoking heavily yeah. but you look like you look at Bogart and Bacall and those wonderful movies that they did together there was this incredible tension they they just didn't bet each other in the first scene um, there needs to be this sort of tension and so you're right I I I love the sexual tension that exists between the sexes and it's precisely because I do, that I am a critic of the sexual revolution. Uh, it, it just sort of unleashes an animal appetite, but without any kind of aura of mystery, it, it destroys that aura of mystery. Um, so yeah, uh, we need to have, um, more of a sense of mystery between the sexes and smoking was historically a part of that.
0: Yeah. And going back to Oscar Wilde. So, uh... It, Dorian Gray it's uh, you know I think that was the first time he got kind of in trouble for or like people start to suspect that he was engaging in sodomy and then you know the trial happens and I guess it was 1895 um, big scandal in those days the crime of gross indecency whereas the reference to the cigarette is kind of looked past it's nothing whereas today it's kind of reversed that cigarette smoking is kind of the crime of gross indecency like they're trying to you know demonize people who smoke whereas when it comes to sexuality it's kind of whatever love is love and it's just it says a lot about how our view of the person of what love is, what um, fulfillment is, has just totally shifted since, you know, the turn of that last century. So
1: true, Stephen, that is so funny. I I never thought of um, cigarette smoking as the love that dare not speak its name, but uh, I think you're right uh, that it, it has become that. And, you know, we live in such an inconsistent society because we're absolutely paranoid about the effects of smoking on our bodies. And yet, as you mentioned, marijuana is given a free pass. Marijuana has such bigger, um, has had such a, a bigger impact on public health. Um, yeah, it's it's astonishing. So there's there's a lot of inconsistency.
0: And I think the fixation on banning smoking, it has this very puritanical drive. And it's just, again, it's this inconsistency that when it comes to sexuality and so many other things, like we're trying to shut off this puritanical heritage, but now it's smoking. Now that's where we're projecting that drive. Um, but it says a lot about our culture because I know there are certain environments, like I go back and forth between New York and New Jersey. That's where I spend most of my time. I know there are certain neighborhoods where if I light up a cigarette, I'm gonna get death stares or someone's gonna come up to me and say, and I say, you're gonna die which has happened, it's happened, yeah. I've heard, I did it once on the West Coast and people got really mad, but certain parts of the city of New Jersey that will happen, I know there are other neighborhoods where everybody's smoking, people are even smoking inside their houses. And I notice the places where it's less of a thing, it's mostly working class neighborhoods, mostly ethnic barrios. So like, you know, my family is Greek and Italian. I think Greece has like the fifth highest smoking rate in the entire world. Italy, Italy's not that far behind. But when you're in those Greek Italian neighborhoods, when I'm in, you know, if I'm in uh, in Newark, New Jersey, where there are you know a lot of different ethnic groups, like it's like you can sit down at a restaurant outdoors and smoke and no one's gonna say anything. Whereas I remember I was in downtown Manhattan, I went to an Italian cafe. I had a cappuccino, I was smoking outside because that's what Italians do. And the seating host yelled at me, it was like, you can't smoke over here. Like you have to step into the street to smoke. And I'm like, they're just the cultural norms are so vastly different. It yeah. says so much about the cultures, yeah. you know? Yeah.
1: No, I agree. Uh, it would be interesting to know what wh- where the pockets of America are that still yeah. have smoking. I haven't smoked in public in a while, uh, yeah. you know, and it's not just just because, well, I'm a father of six kids and I don't get out a lot, so I stay at home. And uh, my wife and I and friends will get together and then just enjoy a cigarette in the in the backyard. But even us, it is funny you mentioned smoking inside, um, you know, how the norms have changed. I, when I grew up in the 70s, it was very common for people to smoke inside and you had indoor ashtrays and special little lighters that were on a table.
0: Yeah.
1: And it was it was normal. Uh, But now it's interesting that even among committed smokers, they won't smoke inside. Uh, And and I'm among them that uh, largely because of my wife, I don't have a sense of smell. She does. Uh, She doesn't care for the lingering smell, even though she is also a smoker. Um,
0: For me, I I'm I'm indifferent, but uh, I see her point and I obey her. Yeah, the only times I've done it inside, I know in Atlantic City, some of the casinos, there are smoking sections indoors. And the other time I was in Jerusalem. It's interesting because the Israeli part of the city, you, like they have very strict smoking laws, but in the um, Palestinian side, you can smoke inside the hotel, and the restaurants, nobody cares. But um, speaking of smoking inside, I didn't want to talk about hookah because that was my gateway when I was in college. Because I was I was taught when I was a kid by my parents, like they they told me, you know, you could be whoever you are, do whatever you want to do, but don't smoke cigarettes. That's the only thing will kill you if you smoke cigarettes. I heard the same message when I was in school. And when I was in college, I was invited to a hookah bar and I was like, oh my God, I can't smoke this. This is evil. I'm I'm a horrible person if I do it. And then I tried it and I was like, oh that's really not that bad um it's i don't know there's definitely it's a very communal experience because you're sharing from the pipe what do you think about like i guess water pipes when it comes to tobacco smoking
1: i've tried hookah a couple of times with uh tobacco and i thought it was an incredibly smooth and satisfying smoke i also liked the communal dimensions of okay. it so i I would be curious to know what you think, Stephen. So you're the one who is, you know, has read my article and invited me to, to be on your uh, podcast. So we've got the three parts of the soul. In some respects, hookah seems to check all three on the list, right? That it's it's inhaled, but it's permanent, like a pipe, mm-hmm. um, which, as you know, in the article, I argue betokens the. Wisdom, right? Wisdom is this eternal thing, and the pipe's permanence kind of reflects that, unlike the cigar and the cigarette, which are discarded after use. Yeah. Um, maybe I don't know how a hookah would fit into the, the thumas, the spiritedness, but <sighs> it definitely is, it's an interesting straddler of categories. I guess I would say that much, but I, I'd, I'd be curious to know what you think.
0: I think a lot of it depends on the context like, or the setting where you're smoking, because I usually do it, at least in New York, hookah bars have loud blasting music. They're usually, most of the ones I've been to are run by Arabs or Hispanic people. So they have either like loud Arabic music or Hispanic music in the background. And then, you know, if it's like a Muslim bar, they're not going to serve alcohol, but the others will. You have food. Or you can have it with tea. It, it, I don't know. Like I find that if it's in a party setting with the loud thumping music, it's um, it kind of loosens you up to enjoy the party, to enjoy the presence of others, but without, again, like losing sight of the value of being together. Your reason still intact. Whereas if it's one of the more chill bars where you have tea, you have a baklava, something like that, it's very conducive to having deep conversations and like I've had many conversations late into the night and those types of hookah bars. Um, But yeah, I would agree that it doesn't have, you know, the spirited part. It's, you don't have much of a sense of accomplishment or proving something about yourself. I definitely think there's something more repetitive or, um, or yeah, the rational, depends depends. But for me, the other thing I was going to mention is that when I started smoking hookah, I was still very resistant to cigarettes. So I thought, you know, is there a way I could smoke hookah when I'm on the go, when I'm not at a bar? And that's when I found the e-hookahs or the hookah pens, which is basically eventually became vapes. And, you know, they're very convenient because you don't have to light them up. There are no ashes. You don't smell. You can get all kinds of flavors. You can smoke it anywhere um and I I tried to stop once I found out about the health effects because I think it's different from smoking cigarettes they there's something called popcorn lung I don't fully understand it sounds scary but it sounds awful <laughs> I don't know I don't want it but the thing that's like at least on a philosophical level you get the nicotine buzz but the fact that you can do it anywhere you could do it in bed you could do it in the car and there's no consequence there's no like physical tactile experience really other than you know sucking on it and then maybe recharging it it makes me afraid that like I'm getting this high or this buzz without um, like it's such a my a disembodied experience and I worry also because like I'm honestly not super addicted to nicotine. I can go a long time without it. But for people who really have that chemical dependency, the fact that you could be smoking anywhere, um, again, the the fact that it's so disembodied, it makes it so much riskier. I don't know.
1: I agree. And when I wrote that article, uh, this was before vaping, so I, I didn't have to confront that. But it does... Yeah, I I share, I share your, uh, your opinions on it.
0: Yeah. So um, I did want to take a moment before we wrap up to talk a little bit more about alcohol, because that's, can you first of all, can you just mention the, the, I think it's three books that you said you wrote about drinking?
1: That is correct. So I am the author of Drinking with the Saints, Drinking with St. Nick, which is a Christmas holiday book. And drinking with your patron saints. And in all of these, I pair beer, wine, and cocktail suggestions with the various feast days of the, the church year. I'm a Catholic theologian, so I have a follow the Catholic calendar, and uh, you know, so if it's Saint So and So's feast day, I try to find a good drink to recommend for that day. So can you give an example, so it's led me to. I'm sorry, go ahead.
0: No, no, can you give an example of like a saint that you would pair a drink with? I'm curious to know.
1: Well, sometimes it's easy. So, uh last week we had the feast of Saint Bruno. Mm-hmm. Bruno is the founder of the Carthusian order, and the Carthusians of course make the world's most delicious liqueur, Chartreuse. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was a sort of an easy one and uh you know, the Trappist order continues to make Trappist beer. And so if there is a Trappist saint, then I can assign a, a Trappist beer to that. But oftentimes the connections aren't so strong. Um, so where are we today? Today is the 27th. Is there a- 27th? Oh, yeah. So um, tomorrow is the Feast of St. Jude. He is the patron saint of desperate causes. And uh, there are a couple of cocktails called the Desperado, which uh, I've assigned uh, to him.
0: Interesting. What about, is there a drink for St. Benedict?
1: There are a lot of drinks for St. Benedict because... There's Benedictine liqueur.
0: That's what I was going to say. Yeah.
1: Which the, uh, is supposed to have come from a Benedictine convent. And um, the Benedictines were also quite active in making beer and wine, mm-hmm. uh, especially in the Middle Ages. Most of them got out of it in the 19th century because their lands were confiscated. Uh, during what, when a lot of these European governments became secular, they did land grabs. And the Benedictines uh, lost a lot of their property, which, uh, which they had vineyards and things like that.
0: Yeah, I've had the Benedictine liqueur. Isn't it a mix of, um, there's like an orange flavor to it or something? Orange or wrong? A little bit. It's yeah. not an
1: orange liqueur. It's an herbal liqueur, but it does have something of an orange taste.
0: Yeah. When I went, I went to Mount Subiaco in Italy, where I think I think Benedict died there. And I bought uh, a little bottle of uh, Amaro, like that very bitter herbal kind of... Yeah. I can't handle it. It's too much for me. No, you, you have to mix it with other things yeah. to make a cocktail out of it. Yeah. What about... Is there one for Teresa of Avila?
1: There is. Um, she died at an interesting moment in history. It's when the calendar was being adjusted, when we went from the Julian calendar to what's called the Gregorian calendar under the the, the Pope's name was Gregory at the time that this happened in the 1580s. But uh, the calendar of Julius Caesar had slowly become more and more inaccurate. And so in order to adjust for this, they had to get actually rid of, it was 10 or uh, 12 days. And so Teresa of Avila died on the evening of October 4th, but the next morning was October 15th. They just had That's to get rid wild. of these, 10, okay. th- these 10 days. 10 and so there's a cocktail called the Time Warp, which uh, I assigned to her in honor of this
0: event to try that next year. That makes sense. I never thought of that. Awesome. So Dr. Foley, thank you for joining us. Uh, Before we go, are there any plugs you have? Do you do social media or any way people can keep up with your work?
1: You know, I used to be more of an active blogger than I am today, but the Drinking with the Saints page on Facebook does occasionally post new new cocktail recipes, uh, new developments in the world of, you know, Catholic mixology. We uh, last week was John Paul II's feast day and I posted a new cocktail in his honor. So I guess that would be one place where uh, your viewers and listeners could go.
0: Great. So thank you again for joining us and uh, hope to have you back soon. This was fun. Great. Thank you so much for having me, Stephen. Had a great time. All right. (music) Thank <music> you.